We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you again for joining me this week. With me today to talk everything Chicago Bulls, including Wendell Carter's dominance in Summer League, is my lone Danish friend, Mr. Morten Jensen. Morten, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you for having me. And also, kudos on doing that intro in one take. <laughs> Thank you. I always nail them on my first go, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Very non-sarcastic uh, remark there from yourself, which I'm sure the <laughs> listeners will have no idea about. Yeah, well, you know, you're always a professional. You can take <laughs> Hey, it's not, it's not live radio, it's a podcast. That's all that matters. <laughs> but beyond that, look, I wanted to I wanted to talk Summer League, obviously. Mm. I was, I've been watching, obviously, the first four games of Summer League of the Bulls have been been playing and I was so hyped up to the first Cavs game that I decided or I was going to decide that I was going to just jump online, record a solo podcast because I was that, I guess, energized and that hyped after what I saw from Wendell Carter after one game. But then I sort of talked myself off it thinking maybe this is just one game. Maybe, you know, he randomly was just blocking five shots. It's not, we're not going to, going to expect that sort of of level of defense or, or even that offensive performance as well. So maybe just cool it a bit, see what he does for, you know, two, three, four, five, maybe even the rest of the summer league games. But we, we've gone through four games now and he's been pretty damn consistent. The skills are clearly there and we have to remember that summer league is a game or a tournament that's not really designed to, I guess, I, I guess breed success for bigs. It's often these wings, the perimeter guys, Guys like Antonio, Antonio Blakeney who like to get up shots, like to take things off the bounce. Those are the guys that are typically rewarded in summer league. And for Wendell Carter Jr., the bull center, to be doing this, given all that, 
Um, I'm just super impressed right now. So, mm. but look, I could go on for probably four hours as to what I love about Wendell Carter, but give me your initial takes on what you've seen from him in summer league and, and why you should, why you're excited and why Bulls fans should be excited. Well, I've been excited about Carter for a while. So nothing he's doing right now is, is coming as a surprise to me. I think what he did at Duke playing behind, behind Marvin Backley, he was just consistently overshadowed because Bar- Backley is this pogo stick who just, you know, went on all the highlight reels, got on Sports Center, and, and you put up all the huge raw numbers that people look at. But at the end of the day, there was Wendell Carter getting his, you know, 13 and 9, like clockwork, doing the solid rotations defensively, blocking shot, boxing out, passing from the low post, the high post, even from outside the three-point line. And he, now he's just doing it on a, a slightly higher scale and doing it without having this backly presence in front of him, which is really allowing him to to be the main attraction. And to his credit, like he's not shying away from it. He's proving once and for all that he is as good as advertised. The fact that he's blocking these shots, that that's it's not coming out of nowhere. Like I saw NBA.com on Twitter, were like, oh, did you know he had this in a yeah, yeah, we did. Like, I know he didn't average like four and a half blocks in college, like Mo Bamba or whatever, but he was still a very, very solid shot blocker. What what surprised me was the finesse he did it with here in summer league. Like that, you know, the the two handed steal slash block in game one, which was very reminiscent of I don't know if you remember this, the Michael Jordan on the Wizards block on Ron Harper, uh, or not Ron Harper, sorry, on Ron Mercer. Jordan had one of those on, on Ron Mercer back in the day when he was with the Wizards, and it was very re- reminiscent of that. Um, and, and yeah, he's just showing this entire skill set. Like, he can pass, he can score, he can shoot. The the thing that's – he had one play. So he's had one play in Summer League so far where he just made me jump out of my seat. And you uh, put that video up on Twitter as well where he caught the offensive rebound. This was in game one against Cleveland. He caught the offensive rebound like in momentum and stepped back outside the three-point line in the corner and just nailed it. Like that was that was not something I expected from him. That was something where he showed me, oh, okay, he, you can do a little bit more than we think because he just created a three-point shot off an, <laughs> an, an offensive rebound that he caught right near the rim. It was... I, I mean, I'm playing that whole sequence back, and that's pretty special. It is. And, um, you know, that tweak that that you mentioned or referenced from mine got a lot of play because because it's just an insane play. One we probably didn't necessarily think Wendell Carter Jr. had in his game. And I, I guess, you know, plays like that to me is, is why I don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that Summer League is meaningless. Maybe from a, a grand career perspective, it may be, right. but in terms of seeing what these guys can do and just maybe not looking at their numbers, but looking at their ability and their skills. I think it's very right. telling. If you, if you think back to last season's summer league and, and who stood out there, it's no surprise that guys like Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum, for example, went on to have the seasons they did because they looked and, and you know, they looked so good playing in those mm. games, but the way they did it as well, the feel that they had in those games, it was really telling. And I'm getting those vibes from from Carter Jr. at the moment. It's not necessarily the numbers he's producing. He's obviously averaging 16 points and eight rebounds a game, which, you know, they're solid numbers. And as I said before, in a tournament not designed necessarily for big men, that, that's really damn good. 
but it's it's the things he's doing, the small things that he's doing. So obviously we've seen the shooting, which is mm. huge for modern day big men. But he, he's obviously got the three point shot. He's definitely got the defense. We've seen the blocks, but beyond that, probably more importantly, we've seen him go up with um, verticality and really protecting that rim, which is awesome. But even probably even more importantly, we've seen him stretch out to to towards the perimeter there and guard decent guards pretty pretty effectively. Like I'm not sure if it's going to be as seamless when he's guarding, you know, someone like Steph Curry, uh, Steph Curry or James Harden or some of these elite type guards, but against your run-of-the-mill NBA perimeter players, then I think Carter Jr. at least has shown flashes that this lateral quickness issue that was sort of bandied about against him, it may be a slight overreaction. And um, so in in that way, Summer League has been super telling for me, and um, and that's mm. why I'm impressed with Carter Jr. I agree. Um, I, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, Summer League, you don't look at the numbers. Like, yeah, sure, if you have great numbers, that's fine, but it doesn't go anywhere. It's not registered anywhere to your, like, career statistics. It it doesn't matter. What you look at in Summer League, that's, that's the one area where you can just go all eye, eye test. Like, everything is eye test. And so far, like, how many miscues have you counted from Weldon Carter in four games where you just go went... Oh no, that's that's horrible. That's really a problem going forward. My count zero. Yeah, m- mine too. Like when I watch him, I don't. I'm, I feel like I'm watching a three or four year player. Mm-hmm. The the level of poise that he showed in that first Cavs game was just insane. And we're talking about a guy who's obviously playing in his first, I guess, professional game, if you want to call it that. Even though he's he's not necessarily going against full time professionals all the time. But the things he was was doing as a 19-year-old rookie, one of the youngest players in his draft, as a big man, I guess, marshalling that defense and commanding that defense, it's insane to me. And that's why I'm super positive about this pick right now. And you mentioned Marvin Bagley before, and I've been thinking about this last few days, but do we as Bulls fans owe Duke and owe Marvin Bagley a bit of a thanks that they, I guess, (laughs) forced their way to Duke and sort of made Wendell Carter Jr. sort of put him back in, you know, maybe he wasn't, it was, he was meant to be the star or at least the star big man, right. but because Bud Bagley came on board, he was sort of pushed aside to a degree. But do we owe Bagley a, a thanks given that he allowed for, I guess, Wendell Carter Jr. to slide a little bit, people thinking that uh, Bagley was the, the prize guy, not necessarily um, Wendell Carter Jr. Who, who who's probably been the best big man in summer league thus far, yes, absolutely. The Bulls fans, oh, oh, oh Marvin Backley, I thank you for that. Because look, here's the thing: when you have a guy like Backley who is so athletic and and such a entertaining highlight reel, it is so easy to look over a guy like Wendell Carter Jr. And I, I don't think Carter, in any stretch of the imagination, had a bad year at Duke. But still, you know, before the draft, people were pointing to him like, oh, but he had to play behind Backley, so he didn't really do what he wanted to do. No, he didn't do what he wanted to do, but everything he did was was good. Now imagine that amplified without the presence of Backley. The, the, you know, Carter could have averaged like 20 and 12. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't even have batted an eyelash if someone had told me that. Like he he was he was outstanding in what he did, and he could easily have done more had he 
you know, had the opportunity to do so. Now we'll see what he does on the NBA level. Now he's coming into a team where you have another strong component in Laurie Markin, and you also have a Zach Levine who's going to take a lot of shots. So we'll see what kind of role he's going to get. I, I don't anticipate him starting right off the bat. I have a feeling that's going to be Robin Lopez, so he'll be eased into this entire endeavor. But I have a feeling that he's going to be hard to keep off the floor, much like with Duke. Like, whenever they had issues, like, they brought Carter back in there to bring stability, and I have a feeling the Bulls were going to be the same way. And what's absolutely ridiculous to think about is, this kid is 19. And in lieu of that, remember when people said, oh, he he doesn't have the highest floor, or sorry, the highest ceiling? Can you really say that about someone 19 who's this smart? Like, he'll find a way to improve in virtually every you know, category where he's already damn solid as it is. Like, this dude could be a megastar when everything is said and done. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And the things that have really got me excited about someone like Wendell Carter Jr. beyond his play on the court is is what you hear from him after games and what you read in quotes. And mm. the fact that the guy's talking about defense and setting screens and doing these little things that we've sort of already talked about, but... He he obviously does them instinctively on the court, but he's obviously thinking pretty clearly about them off the court as well. It's part of his DNA as a player. He's this defense-first guy, it would seem, and that's just his mentality. So in that sense, given given that mentality, given that he's a 19-year-old center and the fact that he's so focused on team first, I don't know if he's going to be a big-time superstar or some some sort of player that, uh, I guess, fans gravitate towards. And and maybe, again, this is where the Al, Al Horford comparison really comes into play, but he, he seems mm-hmm. like he's going to be one of those team all-stars, if that makes sense. Someone that casual fans maybe don't necessarily respect or overlook, whereas uh, fans of whatever team someone like Wendell Carter Jr. is playing on they recognize every single thing he brings and the value he brings. And I've already got that sense from him over four games, which is just nuts. Right. I, I would agree. And and here's the thing. I personally think Al Horford is a superstar. No one really classifies him in that because you look at the stat line and it goes like, oh, 12.7 rebounds. That's not something to like, <laughs> you know, create a party for. But he's awesome. Like he's doing everything you need him to do. And at some point, he just goes beyond the box score. And I have a feeling Carter is going to do something similar. Um, I don't remember who came up with it with the comparison of throwing a little bit of Elton Brand into like that whole you know Carter Horford comparison. But I really ducked that one. I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I see it now. Like especially when it comes to the shot blocking, like the anticipation level and stuff like that. Uh, I think Carter is is going to be. At the very least, uh, one of the t- top 10 best centers in about five years. I mean, look look at what, where's the weakness of him? Like, I don't, I cannot find one. I, got, I understand when he reaches the NBA, like, fully, and it's not summer league, you're going to have guys who are going to blow by him. But I kind of feel that's a flawed argument against him. Because those guys like Steph Curry and James Harden, as you mentioned, they're, gonna, they're driving by everybody. Like, they're driving around Rudy Gobert. They're driving around Draymond Green. They're driving around all those guys. So 
I mean, I don't really look at that and go, oh, the, you know, Wendell Carter can't guard Stephen Curry. That means he's a bum. No, no, that's it's because it's Stephen Curry. But like you said, if Carter can go out and show and recover and hedge on, you know, the vast majority of NBA wings and lead guards, he's doing a wonderful job. I mean, then he he's doing everything that's in his power to affect the game on a positive level. And as it stands right now, it seems that he can. I'm very optimistic about him. And the idea that he and, and Laurie Markinen is going to be paired up in the front court is very enticing. Both of them can shoot. Laurie is not as strong inside, but I assume that's going to change a little bit because I don't know if you've seen any of Finland's uh, uh, qualifying games, but he, he's he's put on some weight, the good old Laurie Markin, and he's looking really good. And he's looking a lot more bouncy this year compared to last. Um, I, I Those guys are going to be extremely interesting to follow in the next couple of years. I have seen that Larry's gotten a bit more jacked lately, which is kind of encouraging. And, and I know it's all in the arms, but uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to see what he's been doing with his uh, leg strength and his core strength, with, I think he's, mm. which is far more important than um, getting those buys jacked up. But I do like the, the progress I'm seeing. But it's interesting that you bring up Larry, because I think there is a bit of a parallel between Larry and Wendell Carter Jr. in the sense that both obviously were seventh picks overall, and it would appear both were being slept on as prospects. And one of the things that were undersold about both of them was was their abilities as athletes. And we've seen from Wendell Carter that he's actually quite a lot faster than what we imagined. Yeah, he is. And, and that same thing, like you mentioned, that same thing was the case with Laurie last year. Uh, it's always interesting to go uh, with with the guys who are a little bit you know, flying below the radar. Like, for example, Laurie last year, I, I wasn't super high on him. I thought he had the the numbers that appeared to be more of a wing player, which was kind of disappointing when you looked at his height of seven feet. You would figure, oh, okay, he would rebound. He should, he should be rebounding better at the collegial level. He should be blocking more shots. Like, he should be doing more things outside of playing just as a pig-and-pop wing. And then he arrived in the NBA and... You know, lo and behold, he started rebounding at a higher clip. He started contesting shots. Like, okay, he's never going to be a, a terrific shot blocker, but that's okay. Like, he got into defend, uh, decent defensive position. Like, he started rotating better. He started picking up smaller guards, uh, which he did adequately. Like, there's just there's still room to improve, but he did fine. And, and yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the head there. there are t- these are two guys that are... Definitely flying under the radar to a certain extent where you look at the physicality, you think, oh, well, they're good, but they're not elite. So how how big is their ceiling? Well, you know, pretty damn high. And, and that's because we can't just look at physical attributes and go, well, that is a direct route to success. Both of these guys are obviously uh, brilliant basketball minds. I mean, Laurie, especially when you look at him. Uh, that last year as a rookie coming in and just understanding how to pick his spots as a, as a this stretch four stretch five, like that's one of the most difficult positions to come in as, especially in this new HMBA. And he just got it from day one, which just shows you that he's got a great understanding of the game. And then in comes Carter, where the defensive side of the ball is where he has the biggest know how. Not that he's any slouch offensively speaking at all, but. 
his his understanding of where to be on the basketball court defensively is just terrific. And what I really want to take away from those two guys, and especially Carter here, is they're both wired in in a very different way than most players. Carter is extremely serious when he's out on the court. Like he is just locked in in a way where you'd think, oh, he's playing a playoff game. I mean, this dude is committed. When he plays a game, it's like he doesn't see anything else but the basketball court, which is amazing to me. And then you have Laurie, who increasingly so is that same kind of, you know, really focused and detailed guy when he when he's on the court. Like he's he's really engaged in in the game. So when you combine them for this rookie season of, of Carter and the second season of Laurie, that's going to be extremely interesting. And down the road, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see those two really develop a very nice connection out there. Do you think they'll be playing much together initially? Or do you think it'll be more of a pairing of Markin and Lopez and, and maybe Carter Jr. and Portis? Primarily that second, uh, yeah, that, that second scenario. But I do think that Fred Hoiberg is going to make a concerned effort to get Carter and Markin in minutes at the same time just to see how it goes. So they might not play 400 minutes together this upcoming season, but you know he'll give them stretches here and there to see, okay, how do they, how do they function? Uh, if we do this, how does Wendell react to that? If you know if Laurie pops out here, how much space does Carter have? you know, near the basket, stuff like that. I think he will try to see what you can do. And at some point, obviously, we will see a lineup of Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, Chandler Hutchison, Laurie Markin, and, and Wendell Carter just to see what you got in it. Uh, of course you will, but I think you're right. Carter's probably going to back up Lopez initially, and it's going to be Portis and Carter and Markin and, and, and Lopez. The thing is, though, Lopez is never a high minute player. You know, he's not the type of guy who go out, goes out there and plays 35 minutes. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see him average around 25, which, you know, for, leaves a lot of minutes available for Carter and Markin is definitely going to, you know, be looking at the, the good side of 30 minutes. Right. I mean, I can't assume he's not. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And, and, and again, another parallel between Markin and, and Wendell Carter Jr. is probably going to become relevant as the season draws a little closer is, is the fact that Lowry came in and started straight away and was playing 30 minutes straight away. So now people obviously forget what, what enabled that to happen um, <laughs> with Portis and Miritich. And unless Bobby Portis gets a little frisky in uh, preseason once again, I don't imagine you know Wendell Carter Jr. necessarily starting over uh, Robin Lopez. But you, Robin you, Lopez you versus Omera Sheik. <laughs> That'd be an interesting uh, Goliath battle there. But... Um, <laughs> what I do find interesting about that parallel or, or that expectation is I think there might be some disappointment as we get towards the regular season. Maybe, maybe Carter Jr. does start, but I'm not expecting it. No, 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 neither am I. I, I, I don't think you do. I mean, didn't John Paxson say as much? Like, didn't he say he was going to earn minutes? Usually when that line is, is uttered, like, you made a call. I don't remember that quote, but I mean, it, it sounds ex- it, it sounds exactly like something Paxson w- would say, and, and maybe in a weird way, it sounds exactly like something Wendell Carter Jr. would say himself. Yeah, <laughs> that that is not untrue. Yeah, 
So I think he's going to be more than comfortable coming off the bench. So I don't think that's going to be an issue for the team itself. It's probably just going to be more the fans themselves wanting to see the young brigade playing as many minutes together as possible. But you brought him up before. Let's talk about him now. We've obviously gone here on here long enough for Wendell Carter Jr. Look, we'll probably revisit him anyway because we're that hyped about the kid. But let's talk Chandler Hutchinson, the Bulls' other first round draft pick, who has also been obviously on this summer league team, has been a little bit up and down, has shown shown some positives, obviously and some negatives as well. But give me your right. your high level take on what you've seen from Hutchinson thus far. Yeah, I, I see a guy who's very good at passing the basketball while on the move. And that's something when you have that long frame of his. He's he's got a very slow release, which is concerning However, he's been really good at understanding, oh, I need this type of separation to get my shot off. So he's been aware of that. Like he had that one shot that was blocked by Costas Antetokounmpo uh, against Dallas. But that was at the end of the shot clock and he had to put up a shot. And and his slow load up just, that was just fodder for Antetokounmpo. And, you know, it Bulls Twitter went crazy. Like, oh, there's the problem. Yeah, well, usually I've been pretty satisfied with with his shot selection because he understands his limitations, which is something. I think he's he gets into trouble a little bit when he starts to create off the bounce. He's just not comfortable yet uh, in, in this setting. He was at Boise State and on the collegial level, but so far he seems to not be able to create the same sort of separation or the same type of lift that he did in college. Like You can sense that his opponents are a little bit bigger a little bit more athletic and a little bit clever, uh, cleverer than his college opponents, and it's it's taking him off the game just a little bit. Having said that, he's a fine rebounder. Uh, I just mentioned his passing, which I've really been impressed with, and we'll see what what he does in his first year. I I, I don't have the biggest expectations for him coming in this season, even though he's a senior. Uh, I I don't think his ceiling is particularly high. I still think he can become like decent all-around player when everything is said and done like maybe a starting caliber player when when he's in his prime maybe uh but but it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up just being a a perfectly fine three four backup uh for the vast majority of his career yeah and and obviously it's he's only four games into his summer league career and always basketball professional basketball career i guess so it could go a range of ways but i mean if we're just to think about probabilities, it's most likely he's going to be a low-end low, low end starter or, or, or hopefully a capable role player somewhere in that range, as you sort of alluded to. So I guess the, the, the team makeup will ultimately determine that. Obviously, if the Bulls were to find a stud small forward somehow, um, then that mm-hmm. may change things for Chandler Hutchinson and his career arc. But I don't know. I, I've seen some negativity around Hutchinson himself and maybe that's because he was the promise I guess if we want to re- re- uh, refer to him as that yeah and, I mean to fair uh, or I guess to be fair to him he did have his best summer league game um, yesterday against the Dallas Mavericks so he's coming off his best game 16 points and 11 rebounds I believe so and he got those 16 points predominantly on the three-point shot so I don't know, there's, there are things to like about Hutchison. There are some concerns as well, but I guess if you reset your baseline and expect him to hopefully be that, you know, capable utility player who can come in and do a, a, a various range of things, and the things that he does do well are things that I actually enjoy in a player as well. So maybe that's why I'm not one of those 
one of those fans that are a bit negative in the way that I'm perceiving his game at the moment. What I've seen from him is that he's going to be probably one of the team's best passers straight away. And if you can pass the ball and you can create for others, then I'm immediately in on you as a player. And some of the passes he was making against the Atlanta Hawks, particularly in that first half, I made this note on Twitter, but these are the sorts of passes I was expecting from Luka Doncic and Trey Young. But here is Chandler Hutchinson throwing throwing passes off the bounce from the right-hand side of the court to the left, doing so as he's moving and creating three-point opportunities. And obviously, we were talking about Larry Markin and Markin and Wendell Carter Jr. before, but if you think about a situation where the Bulls have inverted their offense and you've got Markin sort of on the weak side there and maybe um, Carter Jr. popping out high and someone like Chandler Hutchison working off a screen from one of those guys and they're sort of flaring out to the three-point line and then you've got maybe Zach Levine out there too, all of a sudden, you've got this secondary play, uh, secondary playmaker out there on the court along with Chris Dunn who can hopefully find these shooters for good-looking good looking three-point shots. So from a passing perspective, I've really, really enjoyed what I've seen from Hutchinson. I would agree. I mean, look, I'm not one of those guys who are overly negative. I, I get the whole narrative that because he was promised, that comes just with that leaves a pretty sour taste in everyone's mouths and whatnot. But What's important to remember here, that's not Chandler Hutchinson's fault. Like, obviously, if someone promise him, promises him, like, we'll take you at 22, you take it. <laughs> like, what's he supposed to say? Oh, no, thank you. I'm not that good. Like, no, that's that's just not a viable option. Uh, and, and to his credit, I, I don't think that would be true if he said he wasn't as good. Like, at 22, this is, so far, it's, it's been fine production. His rebounding has been good. He's been taking the ball off the rim and just started like to, to run with it immediately and setting you know the, the offense up and uh, really putting the defense on its heels, which I find very encouraging. It, there are just some limitations from an an offensive perspective where in, in terms of the half court setting, uh, or I shouldn't I shouldn't say offense, I should say just scoring wise. I don't think he'll be able to to really translate that 20-point average that he had at Boise into the NBA. But the passing that we did not see to the same extent at Boise is really encouraging. The rebounding is as advertised. If he can just find a way, as you mentioned, to become this secondary playmaker and maybe find a way to use that to his advantage to also get to the free throw line a little bit, he'll be fine. Then he'll do what he's asked to do, and that's going to be good. And if nothing else, I... I expect him to become a really decent trade prospect. I mean, when you are, are trying to build a team in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting angle that may that may sort of uh, come to fruition at some point. But he definitely can't, can't create his offense off the bounce in terms of going up for a jump shot mid range or anything of that nature. Is he? I don't think he just has that fluidity in his game at the moment, and and even just his catch and shoot jumpers. It's probably a little bit too slow at the moment, but hopefully that's something Fred Hoiberg can work with him. Because at at the moment, it just seems like that corner three-point shot is one he's got sort of knocked down at the moment. But beyond that, he he probably can't create a three-point shot outside of that. But I mean, if he can get his three-point shot together, and we've already talked about his good passing and the fact that he's a really good rebounder, and his defense Mm. too, whilst not great, it hasn't necessarily been bad. If you can put all that together and become a decent defensive player and on offense be a guy that can knock down threes whilst also being a bit-time uh, secondary creator, 
plus the rebounding, that's that's a really good oh, yeah. role player. And yeah. I think people would be concerned with the fact that you're sort of limiting him to uh, role player status now. But if you think about the 22nd overall pick, that's typically what those types of players end up being. So yeah, that's fine. Yeah, like that's, exactly. That's not bad at all. By the way, I was I was I haven't mentioned this on on Twitter yet because I have a feeling people would laugh at me. But um, the, you know how certain NBA players look at previous NBA players and go, "Oh, I should model my game after that guy. I should I should try to look at as much tape as I can get my hands on about that guy or from that guy." I think Hutchinson would benefit greatly from looking at Antoine Jamerson. Mm, I think I think the frame works. Like they they've got similar body types. Like Antoine Jamerson, like he he Antoine wasn't really that fluid. Like he was mostly like a spot up shot, jump shooter. So when he did create, it was in the mid mid range area in the or in the in the low post actually, and then he would fade away. But I think he had the same sort of issues as Hutchinson in the fact that he wasn't as fluid when in regards to creating his own jump shot. Like he was fluid when attacking the basket and he was on a completely different level than Hutchinson was at that point. But as time prevailed like, or as time went on, he found a way to make himself more adequate as a jump shooter and find ways how to, to create something off the dribble. So he would like take this, he would, he would hesitate a little bit. He would jab he would take that one power dribble in and make, then take a step back and then shoot a three, and it worked. Like that became a move of his. I think Hutchinson would just benefit greatly from watching Jameson. Just watch seven hundred games of him and just realize, oh, okay, that that's how you're supposed to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. Not not one I would have thought of probably myself to be honest with you, but one that I've been sort of kicking around. And 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 when I say this, it'll probably raise some eyebrows, and I'm not necessarily suggesting their entire games are similar or that they are the same player. But if I'm someone like Chandler Hutchinson, I'm trying to find a way to be, at least on offense, a very similar player to Andre Iguodala. And I don't expect that Mm. level of of defense ever. But we've talked about his ability to be a passer. And when you think about it, there's not a lot of players in the NBA who are small forwards who can run a a competent offense. And that's exactly what Hutchinson was sort of singling there in that that Atlanta Hawks game when he had seven first half assists. He was really the point guard of that offense and mm-hmm. was doing so as a small forward slash power forward. So in that sense, I'd see a lot of Iggy in his game or or maybe, oh, maybe I'm being a little delusional and hoping that's what I see in his game. But I think if he can sort of take after him offensively and be that secondary offensive creator, whilst maybe making some of the improvements in, in catch-and-shoot scenarios that um, Andre Iguodala made in his game over time, then that's interesting as well. And then when you factor in the rebounding, I, I kind of like that comparison, but I guess where it falls off is the defense, where we're never going to expect someone like Hutchinson, Hutchinson to be that level right. of a defender. But I don't know. I think he can still be a productive player. And Whilst my guy was uh, Josh Okoge, he was obviously taking two slots before, so I can't be too mad at the Bulls for not necessarily right. going with my guy on that instance. I'm, I'm kind of okay with the Hutchinson pick right now. There's some concerns about his own offense. He, he definitely can't score inside. He needs to put on some muscle. He's probably too slight to be uh, driving into the lane and actually finishing towards the basket. He, he just isn't broad enough. He, the, the strength in his shoulders aren't there to be able to do it. But 
I don't know. I'm feeling good about the pick, and I think he'll be a an interesting player to sort of have around. And a player that the Bulls don't really have on the roster. He's a legitimate six foot seven guy. He's yeah. I won't call him super athletic, but he's he's clearly athletic enough to to play in this league. He's definitely no Denzel Valentine, that's for sure. Yeah, so. this guy can dunk. Exactly. <laughs> he can definitely dunk. But um where do you sort of see him sort of fitting into the rotation? I mentioned Valentine there. We we don't know what's happening with Noaba. Justin Holiday will be back this season and probably going to be mm-hmm. the starter from day one, similar to what I sort of suggested there with Robin Lopez. Right. But do you think Hutchinson will straight away fall into that backup small forward position? I I hope so. Look, I I, I don't think there are any great benefits to, to playing veterans a, a ton of minutes. I mean, if anything, if Justin Holiday is, is going to start, at least limit his minutes to play like 24 minutes a game. I mean, I, I don't see the benefit of just having Hutchinson and, and to some extent Valentine, you know, sit there and get splinters up their ass just because you you, you got to feed the vet. Uh, so so I hope that Hutchinson and, and we we know that he's going to play. We know that he's going to play some four as well. I I hope that he's going to get primary small forward backup role, and then I hope he's going to be the third uh, power forward uh, on the team, so he'll get minutes at both slots and. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about Denzel moving down to the two, but I think he could play minutes there. I don't think he's quick enough to really guard two guards, but you know, it's what are what are the Bulls really trying to do at this point? Win games? Hopefully not. I mean, that shouldn't be their prerogative this year anyway. So my hope is that he gets minutes. If you're if you're younger than twenty five, get minutes really. Yeah, I agree. And something working in his favor is the fact that, you know, we've talked about his passing ability before, but you mentioned before the, you know, potential lineup of Don Levine in the backcourt, Carter Jr. and Markkinen in the frontcourt. If you think about right. those four players, besides maybe Don, there's not a whole lot of playmaking there. You know, Lowry and Wendell Carter Jr. have good passing abilities as big men, but you right. can't necessarily expect them to create offense for, for those around them, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that and the fact that Levine, who is a player we'll talk about a little bit later on, he's not necessarily a gifted playmaker for others himself either, at least at this point. I think right. that's where there's some scope here for Hutchinson to really be part of the rotation as that secondary creator, particularly... You know when Dunn doesn't have the balls, the ball in his hands, and you know the the uh, the ball skips over to the other side of the floor, and there's you know maybe seven seconds left on the clock. Someone needs to create there, and who would you rather have the ball in your hands in that instance? Would you rather have it in the in, uh, the ball in you know Wendell Carter Jr.'s hands? Hopefully, uh, hopefully he can create a score, but maybe you're putting too much pressure on him. Or do you give it to a wing like Hutchison who can create something off the bounce for someone else? Maybe a good looking jump shot. And that's where I think there is a little bit of scope here for him to be in the rotation. Because if you think about Holiday, he's he's not really much of a passer either. Denzel Valentine, I guess, is, but his negative on defense may force him to be out of the rotation at some times, or at least off the court. And David Nwaba, again, he's not necessarily a creator. So this team itself, whilst I like a lot of players on it, there's not a natural there's not many natural playmakers or passers. So I think that's where Hutchinson's really going to be a nice fit for this Bulls team. I agree. I, I will say this. I, I, I'm not a fan of Denzel Valentine primarily because of the lack of defense. 
but I do think it's hard to overlook a guy who averaged almost eight assists per game in his final college season. Like you, It does take a certain level of talent to be able to do that. And to his credit, he did become a better passer last year, even on a per-minute basis. Like His assist percentage went up as, as well, um, as did his rebounding. So I think there is a world wherein Valentine is going to be given that shot to come in and be a type of playmaker who who can take possessions off of Levine and, and Chris Dunn if they don't get the job done. But like, let's assume for a second that happens and Valentine comes in and he's struggling as well. He just can't stay on the floor. He's getting murdered defensively. Just having that ability to pick pick one, like just go to the bench and pick out at Chandler Hutchinson who could come in and sort of mimic those plays and become a, a stable passer and find the corner, shooters in the corner, find the rolling big man or whatever. That is such a luxury to have. And I know that he's going to be a work in progress. That's fine. Again, like I said before, the Bulls shouldn't be hoping to win games, but it's a it's a tremendous luxury to have this sort of guy who can come in and do these type of things. I, I would feel more secure overall, not with the ball in the hands of, of Valentine or, or Carter Woods. I would feel way more comfortable with the ball in the hands of Chris Dunn, assuming that he's going to become the type of player that we expect him to. Uh, I, I was very positive about his defensive play. I, w- I was not as positive about his playmaking and scoring, even though, though both areas took a step up. But that's the next level for Dunn, right? Uh, I mean, he has to be this stable guy coming in the point guard slot. I mean, he has to be. If we're sitting here at this point talking about, oh, you know, the ball should move through the hands of Wendell Cartermore or Chandler Hutchinson or Denzel Valentine, like, that means you have a problem at point guard if that's the discussion we're having. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. That's certainly a fair point. And, and at the moment, even though Dunn isn't an established player, you probably look at the Bulls roster and think their biggest hole is on is on the perimeter at small forward. And I think that's fair. But to your point, if Dunn doesn't make another leap or maybe stagnates to the player he was last season, which was an improved player, but we want to see right. some more improvement this season, if that occurs, then all of a sudden you are really looking at the point guard position for the Chicago team a little differently. So it is imperative that Dunn does make another, maybe not huge leap, but another mini leap, particularly obviously with his own offense, but um, for his playmaking as well, because of what we referenced before, this team doesn't have a ton of playmakers, Mm. which means, I guess it does mean that Dunn's going to have the ball in his hands to, or he's going to have that opportunity to really be that creative, but whether he can take it or not is an interesting question. But look, we've talked... We've talked Wendell Carter Jr., we've talked Hutchinson, we've talked how they're going to fit in this team, but I think we need to talk about Zach Levine. And obviously, I did a I did a full podcast on the re-signing of Zach Levine last week. It was pretty much just straight after the moment it happened. I've had some time to collect my thoughts. They haven't necessarily changed that much, but I think the fan base as well, after a week from, from that news, has um, allowed... Maybe a little bit more time to sort of collect their thoughts about the issue itself. It was obviously one of those polarizing topics for Bulls fans. I did one show on it, but I feel like talking about it again. And I know you've probably got some differing views to it than I do. So give me give me your high-level view of what you thought of that Zach Levine re-signing last week. I thought he was tremendously overpaid. Um I, I get, you know, you and I, we actually exchanged DMs when, after it happened. 
and, and you were more positive inclined than I was, and, and you more or less argue that because he's a wing and that's because in, in cur- the current NBA's climate, wings are more valuable, hence that salary. And, and I get what you're saying about that, but he's not this switchable wing. Like when we're talking about wings in today's climate, it's more like those, you know, the the, the two threes, the three fours, guy who ha- guys who have size, who can switch, who can really affect uh, the game from a defensive perspective. Like Levine is not going to do that. I don't. He might get, or might he should get better defensively. I, I'm not that down on him to say that he's not going to get better defensively. He is going going to be better defensively. The thing is, he's probably not ever going to be a plus defender. His lack of not just defensive awareness but also offensive awareness, overall awareness is is horrifyingly bad. Like it's it's unbelievable how often he lost guys. Like, where he just didn't recognize, oh, my guy left me five seconds ago. Like, cognitively, he's just so slow to pick things up when on the court. Like, he's a hard worker from everything we've heard. He's also a tremendous guy, and he's a very dedicated worker. All those things, awesome, awesome, awesome. I I don't have anything bad to say about that. But when you are paying a guy almost $80 who just has such a hard time understanding how to string together a high-quality basketball game, that is just a tremendous concern to me. I think he was overpaid by a lot, a lot, a lot. And But, but, you know, I kind of settled in with the fact that he got that money because, look, the Bulls more or less, you know, teased it whenever they made the Butler trade. So whatever, we all knew it was coming. The problem I have, Mark is that during the time where the bulls were you know you know deciding to pick up his option or actually or do, do matching the offer sheet they had a lot more money to be able to take contracts on you know back contracts on to you know squeeze out additional draft picks or assets or whatever and they didn't do that so when they re, when they matched the offer sheet Levine was automatically signed and the bulls lost 10.5 million dollars of you know, additional absorbing money. And I don't think the Bulls are in a position where they can be picky about these things. I, I think they are still in a in a situation where they need to acquire as much talent or as many future assets as possible. And it seems to me that they're not doing that. And it's, yeah, that that's, that's what I was really disappointed of. That was just their inactivity during the whole Levine thing. Like, they must have prepared, knowing full well that he could have gotten an offer sheet somewhere, and then saying, oh, okay, so we have this trade lined up for when that happens, whatever he makes, then we can get this under the cab, and we can take on this guy, we can get a draft pick, maybe two, whatever, it's going to be fine, we're not going anywhere anyway. And then we re-sign Levine using his bird rights, so we can go over the cap. It's no problem, we're not going to be near the tax anyway. And no, it didn't happen. And I'm just at a loss for why. And that's disappointing to me. Okay, so whilst I don't disagree with you in in terms of the premise, I'm not sure if I could be totally against the Bulls in this instance because obviously to take on a bad contract of sorts, it takes two to tango. So whilst I definitely agree that it would have been nice for the Bulls to, in that 48-hour window, to take on a bad contract of sorts, that assumes that there was a bad contract there waiting to just to be had 
and to be absorbed into cap space and one and then the transaction was just sitting there waiting to go or potentially waiting to go and we we don't know that so i guess that's why it's difficult for me to be holding that against the bulls right now because you know if i'm thinking about potential salary dumps mm-hmm. do we know that the denver nuggets wanted to um, trade uh Kenneth Freed into the bulls space no. we we don't but we like, do know we know Melo was ever available and he's still available and hasn't been moved to this point. So because is, no one has like the, the absorbing power anymore. The Atlanta Hawks can't even absorb the entire deal. The Bulls could have. And because of the significance of that contract, the Bulls could absolutely have squeezed out like a 2022 unprotected first rounder because it would have saved OKC over $100 million. And they've been very straightforward in saying they prefer to trade him until they, uh, instead of releasing him outright. So, I mean, there was something to be had there. Well, again, an assumption. So that, that no one, that, that news about Mallow sort of surfaced after the Levine stuff. And that would involve Mallow actually agreeing to, to a trade. Now, assuming he comes to the Bulls, he would be bought out. So maybe there would be... Yeah an assumption that he would agree to that trade because that would allow him to go to Houston or to the Lakers exactly. or something of that nature. So, And yeah, that would I have mean, been a part of it, obviously. Like, just, just to clarify, I am not at any point saying the Bulls should trade for Melo the player. <laughs> just, no, of course not. Yeah. No. So <laughs> whilst I understand the logic that you're sort of implying there, and, and look, I, I wrote something about the fact that the Bulls should be looking at taking on someone like Carmelo mm-hmm. into their space if they've got nothing better to do with it. But... I guess where I pause is, you know, were OKC willing to do it at that point in time? I I don't know about that. You know, they've only you've only got a, a forty eight hour window to shore that thing up, and if for whatever reason Mallow and his team were hesitant to that, or weren't necessarily receptive to that, or even OKC, maybe they weren't necessarily at the point at that stage of saying, yeah, we definitely want to move Mallow. You know, they've got no need to move in right now. They don't have to pay that tax bill right now. They could do it at the deadline. They could do it at a later point. And you could still take back Mallow by sending back someone like Amir O'Sheik's, uh, O'Sheik's contract sort of thing. So you don't have to mm-hmm. absorb him straight into space. So Well, that means a lesser return though. It does, but I mean, that's that's fine. There's, you still have the ability to get something done. So I don't think the book is closed on that. And at this point as well, the Bulls have about $16.5 million in cap space. So the logic of still taking on bad salaries still exists is something that's still, it's still um, an option for the team. So right. whilst I but see why what you're saying... Fine, though? Sorry? But why is that fine? Like you just said, it's fine. I th- this What's is where fine? I'm struggling. Like you said, it was fine that they didn't get the, like the same. Re- they get a limited return. Like it, let's say a sheik was the guy I sent back. Like why? If you are looking at potentially, let's say a heavily protected first, right? Because they had to take Omer Sheik's contract back. Why is that okay? If let's assume for a second that the alternative was there and they were going to say, okay, you can have a unprotected 2022 because that's the earliest you know pick they can can they can offer at this point in time, actually. Like, why would that be better? Wouldn't an unprotected 2022 pick just be a hell of a lot of a better return just by swallowing Melo's contract in its totality? 
Oh, it definitely would be better, but what I'm what I'm arguing is that because we don't know that one that that pick was on the table and that the entire mm-hmm. trade was on the table. Obviously, that trade is better than you know trading Mallow for a Sheik and maybe some other low, a lower asset of sorts, maybe a, right. a low a lower first round pick or something of that nature with with uh, more rather than it being unprotected, maybe it becomes protected or something of that nature. Maybe that happens, but obviously you'd rather have that space to take on Mallow for that unprotected 2022 pick. But what I'm saying is if there were events there that didn't allow for that to happen in that 48-hour space, which I think is more than conceivable to suggest that's the case, I'm not going to hold that against the Bulls at this point for not doing something with that space, that $10.5 million space that they have had only 48 hours to do. And, you know, obviously maybe that's... Maybe I'm being uh, a little bit too favorable for the Bulls, but if I look around the league at the moment, the only salary dump move that's been made this offseason to date is being the Wilson Chandler move to, to Philadelphia. So it's not like there has been a market where teams are actively dumping guys into into space at the moment. That's what we expected to be the case. Teams like Atlanta and Sacramento haven't necessarily taken back bad contracts from a range of teams that hasn't happened yet and we haven't really heard much buzz from other teams you know trying to actively sell their really bad contracts at the moment so you know we, we thought at this point maybe the whole dang would be moved from the Lakers before them to, to, to shore up cap space but you know the way things have transpired there it doesn't look like that's going to happen haven't heard anything about Joakim Noah Portland are going to be you know taxed out Detroit there's a lot of teams, the Miami Heat. We haven't heard about any of these teams looking to dump salaries. So I'm just questioning whether the market really existed for teams or whether teams were actively trying to move those bad contracts. I, I think they were because here's the thing. The market was slim as it was. That's why we haven't heard as much. The, the maneuverability was just lacking this year. Additionally, what I've heard from, from several people now is that for for guys who have more than two, you know, two or more years left on their deals, much like Lou, who has two, and, and Joakim, who have two. The teams are asking for two first-round draft picks for that, like a draft pick per year, like a first-rounder per year, essentially. That's a very steep price, and teams are now looking at the whole Josh Smith situation in Detroit, where they're still paying him after stretching him and going, oh, maybe we should just swallow this one. But at the end of the day, if you're the Lakers and you know you're getting traction on a Kawhi trade, like you would probably end up sacrificing those picks if it means Kawhi coming in. There's just such a, so many factors going into it. And also, you mentioned the Kings. You know, the Kings. I am absolutely sure the Kings have been offered a salary dump trade, but you saw what they did with their cap space. Like they offered it to Zach Levine, so that means they're in a different state of mind. They're actually trying to get better. They're trying to spend their money in a way that makes them better on the court. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have gone after Levine in the first place. And now they're supposedly uh, looking at both Marcus Smart and Jabari Parker. Like they're actively trying to play the restricted free agency market. Not sure how you know effective that's going to be. And I wouldn't be surprised one bit if they strike a strike out on Jabari, on Marcus Smart, and even if they find someone else to go for, like Rodney Hood or whatever. If they strike out on those guys, then I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them take on a bad deal i think certain teams are just in a different position like the kings aren't smart rebuilders they want guys immediately it doesn't like the sack levine contract for them didn't make a lick of sense when you think about it um 
And the Hawks, that's the big one. I think the Hawks are just staying out of it for now and trying to just drive up the price because whenever teams whenever teams have just spent their cap space and and they want other teams want to dump some of their players, lo and behold, who's left? The Hawks would be the only team with the cap space left and they can say, well, you know what? We're the only one left so we can set our price. I think there's a lot more going on than just those deals were not there. And at the same time, you mentioned Philly. Like Philly is a team that consistently goes out and makes these very progressive deals in one way or, or, or the other. And I feel we've s- sort of reached a point where whenever the Bulls are inactive, we go, oh, the deal might not have been there. Well, then go for that deal. Like the, then make a deal. Just do something that at least snares up interest. Like then then force it through in a way. Not, I mean, obviously that's a very simplistic way to look at it, but it's it's always about oh the deal wasn't there. It's just funny to me how that's become sort of the Bulls' motto. Oh, the deal wasn't there. It's the deals are there so often for so many other teams, but whenever the Bulls fail to do something, it's like oh the deal wasn't there. It just seems like a cop out at some point. I, I get that logic, and I'm, I mean I've applied that argument before, but thinking about it in within this context and just this context alone, and and, and forgetting about past indiscretions. I don't know. I just haven't seen many off-season moves that have led to salary dumps occurring. I haven't heard much noise about it at all. And not from the Bulls, but from just generally across the league. So that's what gives me pause, I guess. So I'm, mm. whilst I understand the point you're making, and I think it's fair to a degree, I, I, it's not something that bothers me too much because, like I said, the team still has $16.5 million in space to take on a bad deal. They don't need to do that now. Maybe right. some teams around the league actively want to see how their roster plays out, even though they're right. capped out, even though they're pushing that tax line. If I'm a team like the Miami Heat or the Portland Trailblazers, maybe I want to see how my team fares in the regular season first before selling off a rotational player who probably isn't earning his contract but can still contribute a little bit if I'm thinking about someone like Evan Turner, for example. Right. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not selling Turner right now because... One, it's going to cost me two first-round picks like you alluded to before. But as mm-hmm. we get get towards the trade deadline, it's only going to be a year and a half of that deal. And maybe I want to see what the team looks like with him still around. If, we, if we're heading towards a 50-win season, maybe it doesn't make sense to trade him. Maybe we just eat that tax. Our owner, he's, uh, he's paid a lot of tax before. He has, uh, I guess, a propensity to do so. So essentially what I'm saying is the Bulls have space still have the space to do that throughout the season. I think teams during the season will have more of an appetite to make those sorts of moves as we head towards the deadline and when they start thinking about their next off-season and beyond. I think that's when it's going to be more, probably more applicable in terms of when are these salary dumps going to occur. But uh, look, let's move on because I think we're probably going to, we've probably spent enough time talking about salary dumps and Zach Levine, but... Just, just for the record, I, I know you haven't listened to my Zach Levine podcast, which sort of breaks my heart slightly. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm so, I've, I've, I've actually been enjoying the summer with my son, and I, I realized that my priorities are completely out of whack. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, well, your son, yeah, I was going to say, that's definitely not okay. Um, but just for the record, whilst I'm, I guess, sounding like I'm def- the def- uh, defending the Bulls here to an extent, and I guess I am to an extent, to me, I graded the deal a C. So I don't think it's a win. I don't think it's as, as big a loss as some are making it out to be. I think it's a wait and see moment. It's a risk. 
I'm not sure if it's going to be a good risk, but um, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But oh, I, I mean, look, I I know for I know damn well that you're not like one of those guys who could just goes, oh, this is an A plus deal. Don't worry, like I I'm not putting you in that camp at all. Good, good, good to hear. Yeah. I'm, I, I, yeah. Whilst I was playing the devil advocate to some degree there around the whole salary dumping piece, and, and whilst I accept that you made some good points there. I, I don't. I don't, want, I don't want to go too far on the deep end on that one mm. because I think there are there's some justifications or some excuses for the Bulls. Maybe that's me just building them up for for no reason at all. But I, I think they're they're plausible. But let's let's quickly move on and finish on some two minor things that have occurred in the last week for the Bulls that I right. guess come somewhat related to that topic that we were just talking about the Bulls cap space. For one of them being. The, the team releasing or waiving uh, Sean Kilpatrick today. So that went through. Mm. He obviously was on a non-guaranteed deal. And the Bulls basically said goodbye to him. There's, there's no real need for him on the roster next season. So no surprise that Sean Kilpatrick won't be brought back. So that um, enables the Bulls to have a little bit more space on their on their roster right. for, uh, I guess, in terms of cap, about $2 million hit there in terms of, of um, getting rid of Sean Kilpatrick. And the other news that we should probably mention, <laughs> don't know how long we want to spend on this, but uh, Jaron Grant was traded in a mega trade to the Orlando oh, yeah. Magic, which um, I think I can't even remember the particulars of the deal anymore. Basically, the Bulls got back Julian Stone, which uh, enabled the cap hit to be a little bit smaller. Uh, Julian Stone was, again, a non-guaranteed deal, someone who the Bulls won't be bringing into the team. Um, and Jaron Grant made his way to Orlando with Timofey Mozgov and uh, who went Piss to Mac Biombo. Piss Mac Biombo, that's who it was. Two bad contracts yep. moving for each other. Biombo goes to the the Hornets and Timofey Mozgov to the Magic. And I guess that means Jaron Grant is going to get some good time there at point guard at Orlando. He obviously wasn't part of the plan. Once Cameron Payne came back, it looked like he was going to be the backup point guard. He was towards the end of the season, and obviously looks like he will be that heading into the season. So, quick thoughts on that landmark trade there, Mort? Meh. Yeah, I think that's it. that. That just about <laughs> settles that one, I think. <laughs> Look, okay, here's the thing, right? Grant was actually a, a guy who, who I liked coming into the draft a few years ago. Um, I yeah, was nervous. Yeah. But I was nervous about his advanced age. I really was. Yeah. I, I kept thinking that his ceiling is definitely not going to be high. And, you know, I was right. And so was so were you and so were everyone else. But it, it I was just so surprised the Bulls kept looking at these this point guard crop of the old, you know, you had Cameron Payne, you had Jaron Grant, those guys. And and had this understanding or, or this conviction of theirs that, oh, he was supposed to be this next big thing. Like, nothing suggested that he was going to be this next big thing. At, at best, he's like a backup point guard. And he was fine. Like, it's not like he was he was horrible. Like, he averaged, what, eight, eight and a half points? Something along those lines and almost five assists? Something like that? Yeah. Fine. Something yeah. like that. I don't know. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. It was, it was okay. For a backup, he's fine. I just always wonder what his career would have looked like if you had slid him into a two-guard position, like just playing off the ball consistently and really, really just work with him on his catch-and-shoot game. I think that he could have been a lot more than what he ended up as. And now, given his age, I'm not inclined to believe that he's going to turn it around. So it's it's not a huge loss for the Bulls. And 
but having said that, I I think he's a good kid, so I, I hope he he finds out he finds a role in Orlando. Yeah, and I think he's going to probably be in the right situation there in the sense that he'll probably be the backup point guard. I'm assuming, again, former Bull of another, of another Bull point guard, uh, DJ Augustine. I'm assuming he'll be the starting point guard. And in that sense, it probably makes sense because Jerrion, he, he was always a backup point guard. And I sort of defended him in a sense because I felt sorry for him because he was being cast into a role that he was never going to succeed in. And when you think about that, or at least assume that, I kind of empathize towards the guy, I guess, or have empathy for for him, because he was never going to succeed here in Chicago as that starting point guard. Obviously, he was starting initially last season because Chris Dunn was injured, but I don't know. When, when you sort of play around with a guy's career like that, it, it's not surprising to me that he it didn't necessarily work in Chicago. Obviously he went to the bench, then he went back to the third string. And then there was times when he came back to being the backup. And, you know, when Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade were around, he was more off the ball playing whilst technically the point guard, he was playing off the ball and played really well in those scenarios. So I think there's still a player with him to your point though. He will be 26 once the season starts in entering the final year of his rookie deal. So there's probably not a lot more potential left in a player like Grant, but look, like you said, I'm hoping he gets it together somewhat and can carve out a, a decent backup career, be mm. it as a point guard or just a, a guard in general. I think he can still contribute, but it won't be in Chicago. And it's an interesting one because we've gone from a scenario where the Bulls had, you know, were carrying four, five, sometimes even six point guards on the roster. And right at the moment, they really only have three, I think. So. I wonder what they're going to be doing with point guard. They've obviously got Dunn, who is, I won't say he's injury prone, but may get hurt right. from occasion, depending based on the way he plays the game with that um, all out approach. Third? Well, uh, at the moment, it's Archie Diakono, but... Um, oh, you know. no. No, come on. No. Well, that's no. what I'm saying. They don't have, they don't have a lot yeah. of uh, point they guards. They have two point roster. guards. Well, I won't let you slander my guy Archie Diakono like that. But um, obviously, the other the other point guard is Cameron Payne, who who yeah. he himself is often injured too. So uh, I wonder if they pick up another point guard here in free agency. But it's, it's um, look, we had to mention that because obviously it's somewhat of news. But um, but more, we've probably gone on long enough now. I just wanted to do a podcast about Wendell Carter Jr. And it made sense to do it with you, given that you were on the Wendell Carter train months before most people. I know you certainly convinced me about him and his potential. You got me. You got that right. Um, he's going to be a damn good player, and I'm very excited about Wendell Carter Jr. So thanks for coming on, mate. Um, and before you, you sort of uh, jet off here, tell the people where they can follow you online and uh, where they can sort of catch your work. Well, you can find me on Twitter at MSJNBA, and you can find me on the NBA podcast where I am co-hosting with Brian Zaporik. I also write for uh, Give Me Sports, the NBA section led by Mark Deeks. Um, and yeah, that's 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 about it. I also, if you're keen on reading Danish content, I have a Danish Patreon where you can sign up. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much you'll you'll benefit from that if you don't speak Danish, but like. If, if you're keen, if you're more than welcome, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, well, maybe I can try learning <laughs> Danish. Who knows? Oh, I, that's, that's a good little side plot there. Like for an additional buck a month, I'll teach you Danish. Yeah, why not? Uh, you know, I was just saying that, but um, maybe. <laughs> 
Maybe. That's Who knows? That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I look but forward I'll... to you inviting me back so we can talk about Antonio Blakeney, by the way. We didn't get around to that one this this time. Yeah. Well, I, I forgot about Blakeney. And, and to be honest you, with you, he, he's a player that I easily forget about because the way he plays the game bothers me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, you, you hate the Gunners. I know you uh, do. I'm not a big fan of Gunners. We'll talk about him next time, and, and I was just going to make that point anyway. Look, look, let's be honest. You'll probably be on in four weeks' time anyway, so we'll catch you again on that time, Mort, when you come back. We'll talk Blakeney at that point, and maybe at that Sounds point, good. Nwaba's being brought back. But um, for everyone listening, you can follow me online at on Twitter at MKHoops. Follow the show at BullsHQPod on Twitter as well. And again, thank you for joining us this week. Don't know when the next episode will be out. It probably depends on what the Bulls are doing in terms of news, but be, be on the lookout in your feeds and all that sort of stuff. But again, thanks for joining me. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.